Sports Radio Network. Broadcasting from coast to coast, city to city, coast to coast. It's time for the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. If it's happening in sports, it's being talked about right here. And here's your host, Ryan Hickey. Good Monday morning and welcome on in to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. We appreciate you making us a part of your Monday morning and at least hopefully coming off a weekend. That was a good one. For yours truly, I can't really tell if you can tell by the, the lighting, but I got a little sunburn over the weekend. The first sunburn of the year, which always feels good, out at City Field on Friday for Mets opening day. Beautiful weather. Great game. The Mets won, so it was a, a tremendous day. Yesterday, I was celebrating Easter with the fam. So whether you're celebrating Easter yesterday, Passover this weekend, hopefully it was a, an enjoyable weekend, a good weekend, a good weather weekend, a fun sports weekend, a loaded Loaded sports weekend for sure that we are coming off of. So hopefully your weekend was was very good and we are coming into this Monday morning feeling good, feeling refreshed and coming in on a high. And again, we appreciate you joining us, starting week with us right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Speaking of a very busy weekend, we got the NBA playoffs going on. We have some NFL news, whether it's Kyler Murray, whether it's other wide receivers trying to get paid. We got a lot to break down. For the next two hours, so let's get into it. We are coming to you live from the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, where there's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. Now, speaking of the NBA playoffs, biggest game uh, of the weekend, Nets-Celtics. And for me, at least, the last two possessions of that game, the final 20 seconds, if you will, are the exact reasons why I didn't think the Nets could beat the Celtics in the first round and why I don't think they're a championship team despite having two of the best players and two of the best scorers in all the NBA. Because those specifically last two possessions of the game in the fourth quarter yesterday put on full display the two biggest deficiencies the Nets have that I think that is standing uh, in the way of them, forget about winning a title, I think even just getting out of the first round. And it's lack of defense and the lack of depth of scoring that the Nets don't have that the Celtics have. Because we saw in that last offensive possession for the Nets in the fourth quarter, when they are up by one, this is exactly what every Nets fan would sign up for. You're up by one, ball in the hand of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, chance to put the game away on offense with, again, two of your best scorers in all the NBA. And instead, what happened? With a game on the line, with a chance to, again, bury the Celtics and win game one on the road, you had, in the final offensive possession, Kevin Durant take a forced and contested three to beat the shot clock. Wasn't close. Now, the question is, well, when you have Kevin Durant, when you have Kyrie Irving, who was scorching hot, how are you settling up by one, less than you know 20 seconds left on the clock, how are you settling for a shot clock beating contested three-pointer when you have two great scores on the court? It's because one of the biggest deficiencies of the Nets reared its ugly head and the Celtics knew it. There's only two players in that moment the Nets could trust in that situation. Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So guess what? The Celtics were really only guarding and swarming Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. 
Kyrie started with the ball, was dribbling all throughout the court, didn't find any leeway, didn't find any space because there was at least two Celtics basically on him at all times. There was only two players the Celtics were worried about in that moment, and that was KD and that was Kyrie because they knew just what the Nets knew. One of those two guys is taking the shot no matter what. You're not dumping it off to any of the other three players on the court and that lack of depth, that lack of a third, just even threat. Force what we saw at the end, which was a Kevin Durant contested three that was not a good look, didn't have a chance, and the Celtics in the biggest moment of the game against two of the best scorers in the NBA locked down and put the clamps on KD and Kyrie. Because again, the other three players on the court, right? Is anyone thinking? Is anyone expecting Kyrie Irving to dump it down low to Nick Claxton? No disrespect to Nick Claxton, but the answer is absolutely not. Game on the line, you are not having Nick Claxton take your final offensive shot. Bruce Brown isn't commanding any attention from any defender on Boston, and Goran Dragic isn't really a threat. So again, as the Nets are dribbling down the shot clock, and you have Kyrie starting with it and Katie finishing it, uh, finishing it there's a reason why neither of those guys got anywhere close to getting off a good shot. It's because the Celtics knew one of those two guys are taking it, so we are going all out here to stopping and slowing down the two biggest threats. The number one defensive team in the NBA shows you, first of all, defense does still win championships in the NBA, and they put the clamps on the two best scorers in the game right now. And then on the flip side, that's one of the reasons why... I, for me, was picking the Celtics in this series, and I did not have the Nets as a title contender because there's no depth there. It's KD, Kyrie, and really no one else. They get contributions here and there from a player or two, but there's no consistent player that steps up to be that third uh, weapon. There's really no one outside of those two that can step up if they're having an off night like we saw KD have yesterday that can kind of lift and carry the team. So when you are so top-heavy, when you are reliant on really two players, to make or break the game and make or break your season, I don't like your odds on most nights. Sure, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving can both have themselves a night and take over a game and no one's stopping them. Yes. But to rely on that four times in a series for four different series in order to win a championship, that's to me, it's too much to ask. Absolutely too much to ask. And we saw that right then and there in the final offensive possession for the Nets with a chance to bury the Celtics put the game away, and steal game one on the road. That lack of depth, that top heaviness that the Nets have came back to bite them. And then on the flip side, when the shot doesn't go down, the Nets, remember, are still up by one. One defensive stand wins the game. And that final defensive possession for the Nets was literally, literally about as bad as you could have asked for. Because you know what that defense was? That was basically kill the man with the ball defense. Do you remember that game growing up? This for me, it was pretty popular in, in the neighborhood I grew up in. Kill the man with the ball. It's more of a, a football game, but the, the idea translates here to basketball. right? You throw usually what is a football up if you have a, a crowd of friends around. You throw the ball up, whoever catches it, now everyone, the only goal is to get the ball out of that guy's hand. So one guy is running around by himself trying to evade every one of his friends. And whether it's three, four, five, how many people you're playing with? Six players. Everyone is basically on their own trying to tackle the man with the ball and rip the ball out and then get it for themselves. That's what we saw the Nets on that final possession of defense play. Kill the man with the ball. 
Because whoever had the ball, whether it's Jalen Brown who started or Marcus Smart right before he dished it out, every single Nets defender basically just ran to wherever the ball is. That's not how you play defense, especially in the biggest moment of the game. Jalen Brown had three guys on him. As soon as he dishes it off to Marcus Smart, the entire defense shifts to the other side of the court where Marcus Smart is. And all Marcus Smart needs to do is throw up a pump fake, two Nets defenders run right by him, and next thing you know, in the biggest moment of the game, the Celtics on offense have a five-on-three. But really, it's not even a five-on-three, it's a five-on-one. Because two of the defenders that are in position to make a play, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant, they're ball watching. They are doing what me and you were doing yesterday, watching, not playing, not defending, not looking around them to pick up a man to prevent a pass from happening. They are just almost at awe and going to see what Marcus Smart is going to do next. So they had a front row seat to see the final pass as Jason Tatum, who started at the top of the key near Kevin Durant. Well, he runs right by Katie because guess what? Katie doesn't see him coming. Kyrie Irving, straightaway angle at Marcus Smart. Doesn't see Jason Tatum coming because, again, they're both ball watching. So you have a defense for the the biggest possession of the game for the Nets. You have everyone running towards the ball. No one's sticking in their lanes. No one is picking up a man. They're basically just running where the ball is. Killed man with the ball. Oh, here's the ball. Let's all four guys run over this side. Oh, now they pass it. Let's all run on the other side of the court. That scrambling allows a pump fake to for Marcus Smart to throw two Nets defenders out of the play, and two of the three defenders left are just standing there watching the ball. So. You know, we, we always hear defense, and defense now is marginalized. We know in the NFL, right, defense especially doesn't get uh, the attention or, or sometimes the respect it deserves. And basketball, the same thing. We look at the stars, we say, oh, no matter how good the defense is, whether it's Steph Curry, whether it's Kyrie, whether it's Kevin Durant, whether it's LeBron James, these star players can just over uh, overwhelm and overcome any defense that's being played. But we do see... The importance of fundamentals just in these last two possessions of the Nets-Celtics game and the lack of fundamentals from Brooklyn's side and the detail, the attention to detail that the Celtics played on both ends of the court in that final 25-second sequence, for me, again, shows why I'm picking Boston to win this uh, first round and why I don't think the Nets are championship contenders. You could try to sell me on Kevin Durant and Kyrie being the two of the best players and scorers on the court in any series they're in. Fine. When you have nothing else behind you, when you don't play very good defense, when you have no one else you can rely on, you're asking too much for your team in a league that is transitioned to now, sure, you need a star or two to win, but you also need depth. You also need defense. You also need players that could do the little things in the big moment. And yesterday, in the last 25 seconds, despite the fact that Kevin Durant, as we know, is a two-time Finals MVP, he has two rings. He has been in the, in the, in the playoffs in the big moment numerous times. Kyrie Irving hitting one of the biggest shots in all of finals history back in 2016. Those two guys have been on the biggest stage and have succeeded. Despite that, in the last 25 seconds, they look like a team that was inexperienced, that didn't know what to do, that allowed the moment to kind of get too bright for them and panicked because whether it was on the offensive end, they got off a horrible rush shot. And the defensive end, they just were standing there doing the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Whereas the Celtics, whether it's on the defensive end of the floor or the offensive end of the floor, looked like the team that was well, that was better coached, which they were, 
who has been in the moments before, knew what to do, and didn't panic despite the fact that time is ticking down, you're at home, and this is a major make-or-break game number one. And that's why the, the Celtics got basically what was an easy layup from Jason Tatum to win at the buzzer. Because on the defensive end of the floor, they were sound, they 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 knew their roles, they weren't you know panicking or, or going off script. Which is why they forced a bad shot from Kevin Durant. And on the offensive end, they ran their offense. They didn't panic. And the Nets were the ones that were scrambling. They were panicking. They looked like, again, they were ill-prepared for the moment. But it wasn't even just that moment for the Nets. It wasn't even just those two possessions. Although they they were the perfect example of why I'm not a believer in the Nets. But it wasn't even that. You can go back to different points earlier in the game where the Nets make one or two stops. This game is over. Like, it wasn't just the fact that the last possession for the Celtics, offensively for them and defensively for the Nets, was so bad. You look at the Nets defensively, too. They gave up so many easy buckets, especially down the stretch, that if they even played a modicum of defense, they're either going to overtime or winning the game. Like, you look when when Kyrie Irving, especially took over the fourth quarter, they take a five-point lead about five minutes ago and really had the lead for a bucket or two down the stretch the entire, you know, final five minutes. But what happened? Anytime they made a big shot, anytime they made a big bucket, right down the court on the, uh, right down the court come the Celtics, and they themselves got an easy bucket. Like, they got so many easy baskets that it was almost too easy at times. And it's not an anomaly, because this is who the Nets are. They were 20th in defensive rating this season. They're not very good defensively. We've even seen games in recent weeks where Kevin Durant has scored 55 points against a Hawks team and the Nets still lose. So we have seen even Kevin Durant go off and the Nets fail to win because, again, they don't focus on the fundamentals and they're not very deep and talented outside of the two best players. They don't play very good defense. Offensively, there's no one else to rely on. And we have seen that come back to bite them throughout different parts of the season. And it came back to bite them in the biggest moment so far their season. Game one, final 20 seconds left in Boston with the chance to steal a massive opening game. Stars are important in the postseason, don't get me wrong. But equally as important in postseason basketball now is having a balanced team, is playing defense, is doing the little things right. The Nets have failed to do that. And that is the reason why they're looking at a 0-1 deficit. And that is the reason why, again, for me, I don't think they're winning the series. Celtics are tremendous defensively. They have players who could score in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. They have other contributors like Marcus Smart and you have Al Horford both going for 20-plus points yesterday as well. They have Celtics had four players with 20 or more points. The Nets had two. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving. There's no depth of scoring. There's no balance to this team like you get from Boston. I think the final 20 seconds is all you need to know about where this series is going. The Celtics did the small things right. The Nets could not. I think it's going to be a grinded out series. It's going to go six games in my opinion. I think the Celtics are winning because they do the little things better than the Nets. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Game one, Nets had one until the final seconds. Can the Nets bounce back in your mind and can they rally to beat the Celtics and overcome a lot of their deficiencies so far this season? Love to hear your thoughts, whether it's on Facebook or on Worldwide Sports Radio Network or check out the Ryan Hickey Show page on Facebook. Throw us a like there while you're there. we got the live stream of the show streaming right there, right now as we speak. So you can click on the show, comment 
uh, on the live stream right there. If you're on Twitter, we appreciate you watching there. You can find us on Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show or WWSRN underscore radio. And we're on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So plenty of different ways to interact with the show. Love to hear your thoughts. Celtics win game one. Are they are they going to win this series? Or are you going to expect a big bounce back from Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving? And the Nets, in your mind, are they the team? Despite, again, being top-heavy, playing no defense, and not doing a lot, of the, uh, a lot of the little things you need to do in the postseason right, are they the team that's going to come back and get a 7-2 uh, seeding-wise upset in round number one? So love to hear your thoughts. We'll get them and when we return. Look, I'll be honest. I'm not a big Kyrie Irving fan. But nothing but respect for what Kyrie did and what Kyrie said yesterday in the game. We'll, we'll play you some of that and highlight Kyrie's impressive game one performance when you return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in the Ryan Hickey Show live with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So if you're a Nets fan, obviously, look, you lose game one in crushing fashion at the buzzer on a Jason Tatum layup. I get there's not much to feel good about today. I get there's not a lot of positives um, to try to take away from a look at. But I will say, well, really the only bright spot so far is what Kyrie Irving did yesterday in his impressive performance. It was what the Nets are waiting for, for frankly, the last three years. Right, this was, honestly, for all the the drama and all the antics that have come with Kyrie Irving since he's came to Brooklyn, this game, this performance, I know it wasn't a loss, but it is really what Kevin Durant, the Nets organization, the Nets fans, have basically been begging for and dealing with, putting up with all the drama on the side to watch Kyrie Irving play the way he did. Because I'll be honest, Like, for me, I've never really been a Kyrie Irving fan. For me, I would have given up on Kyrie long ago. Like, I don't think a lot of the drama he brings along, I don't think a lot of the antics that he pulls are, are frankly, worth it. Like, I don't think the juice is worth the squeeze for Kyrie Irving so far has put on the court compared to the drama and the attention he has brought off the court. So, we started and discussed on Thursday's show that I thought Kyrie Irving was playing for his future this postseason. He was going to be a free agent after this season, and I really thought, depending on how he played, his availability and the drama or lack thereof that he brought this postseason, I thought that was going to be the deciding factor for Kevin Durant, whether he wants to you know, give Kyrie Irving an extension long-term, or that he's ready to cut bait and move somewhere else. Because let's be honest, right? Kevin Durant is the GM for the Nets. Sean Marks sure has the title, but if Kevin Durant doesn't want Kyrie Irving back, Kyrie's not returning, and if he does want Kyrie back, There's no doubt Kyrie signing anywhere else but Brooklyn. So I really did think this postseason was going to be a a huge barometer for the future of the Nets and really the future of Kyrie Irving. Because if you look at it, right, we know Kyrie Irving's a very talented player. But the reality is, so far, what he's produced on the court hasn't been worth all of the, the drama off of it. Right? He's been injured. Where the entire first season, no Kevin Durant wasn't there. He missed that entire first year and the bubble threw everything off. But the reality is Kevin, uh, Kyrie Irving missed the entire bubble uh, postseason playoffs. Last year, he played in the first five games of the Celtics series and the first three games of the or first four games 
of the series against the Bucks before getting hurt. I know it's an ankle injury. Injuries happen everywhere. But he missed the last three crucial games in that series. And if he was healthy, that series against the Bucks goes the other way. It's, it's hard to pick the Bucs with the way they were playing, the way Kevin Durant was playing, and not say if they had even a 50% Kyrie Irving on the floor that the Nets weren't going to win that series. I think they would have. But the reality is Kyrie Irving has been less available in the postseason than he has been on the court. The drama that he brings, whether it's this year with the entire you know vaccine, um, not being vaccinated, not being eligible for home games for basically the entirety of the season up until the last month, whether it was last year going MIA midway through the season without really telling anyone or explaining it, you know, to anyone what, what he was doing or why he was leaving, there was a lot of distractions that Kyrie Irving brings in a negative fashion. So again, I'll be honest, this is just me. If I was Kevin Durant, I would have said, you know what, it's not worth it. I'm moving on. I'm going to try to bring a player here, even if they're less talented than Kyrie Irving. Because again, we just saw yesterday, Kyrie Irving easily is still a top 20 player in the NBA without a doubt. So you're not going to replace Kyrie with a more talented player, most likely. I still would have taken a less talented player, but who's more consistent and brings less attention and drama off the court than to you know run it back with Kyrie and kind of hitch my wagons if I was Kevin Durant to the, uh, to the wagon of, of Kyrie Irving. But with that said, again, yesterday, if the only brights about coming out of this game one loss to the Nets is that yesterday showed why Kevin Durant has always stood by Kyrie Irving. Because he not only was able to carry the offense because KD did not have a very good day, he did so in the face of adversity. And there is no more hostile environment Kyrie Irving will face in the postseason than the fans in Boston. Milwaukee, Phoenix, uh, Miami, Philly, doesn't matter. No fans will be more hostile, more vocal in a negative way towards Kyrie Irving than this series so far in Boston. He was booed mercilessly yesterday. He was called all sorts of names. And to his credit, to his credit, he used that as fuel for a major night. We see players go one of two ways when the attention, when all the crowd is riding, right? They rise up. We've seen great players like LeBron and Michael Jordan rise up in the moments where everyone is against them. We've also seen players crumble. We've seen players let you know let those distractions, let those let that outside noise, if you will, that we always hear from athletes when they're talking about blocking out the outside noise. We do see athletes crumble in the moment, crumble in the pressure, especially in the postseason. And to Kyrie's credit, he used it as fuel, and he had a major, major night. 39 points, as we know, did so very efficiently, 12 of 20 from the field, hit a lot of big-time shots, 15 points in the fourth quarter. So again, he had and saved some of his best shooting performances for when it counted in the fourth quarter. He had that big three with under a minute left that was the last bucket the Nets made and put him up by three at the moment. But he wasn't just playing well. He wasn't just allowing his game to do the talking. I'll be honest, as someone who can't stand Kyrie Irving, who's not a fan of it all, I had nothing but respect for not only how he played yesterday, but how he gave it back to the fans. Flipping the finger on multiple occasions, going back and forth, and John with him. If they're cursing him out, he's going back cursing them out. Like, I'll be honest, I love it. I love when a player, and we saw yesterday with Kyrie Irving, because we don't see too often, when a player can not only back up the, the smack talk with his play, but he's not afraid to go back and forth, put on a show. You want to curse me out? Boom, here's the bird right back at you. It's hard not to respect 
what Kyrie Irving did yesterday because not only do we not see it too often, again, we've seen so many players crumble. So I want to give you a chance to hear Kyrie Irving. This was him yesterday, basically, after the game, explaining what led to him kind of going back at the crowd and cursing them out and giving uh, the Boston fans a loving double bird salute. Look, I, I mean, I'm, I'm just, where I'm from, you know, I'm used to all these antics and people being close nearby. Um, you know, it's nothing new when I come into this building, what it's going to be like, but it's the same energy they have for me, and I'm going to have the same energy for them. And it's not every fan. I don't want to attack every fan, every Boston fan. But, um, you know, when people start yelling, you bitch and you and all this stuff, it's but so much you can take uh, as a competitor. And, um, you know, we're the ones expected to be docile and be humble and take a humble approach. Nah, that's the playoffs. This is what it is. You know, I, I've, I know what to expect in here, and it's the same energy I'm giving back to them. It is what it is. I'm not really focused on it. It's fun. You know what I'm saying? And, like, like, again, it's where I'm from, I, I've dealt with so much. So coming in here, it, you relish it as a competitor. And, and this is, uh, you know, I'm going to keep repeating myself when I say again, but this isn't my first time in TD Garden. So what you guys saw and what you guys think is as entertainment or the fans think is entertainment, all is fair in competition, you know. So if some somebody's going to call me out of my name, I'm going to look at them straight in the eye and see if they really about it. Most of the time they're not. So I will say this. There is a, a very fine line between uh, you know kind of going back and forth with the fans and then allowing it to become bigger than the game itself. To Kyrie's credit yesterday, he did not allow the back and forth of the fans, what they were saying, to become bigger than the game. He make a few shots, run by, give them, you know, give them, uh, tell them they're number one. Or do it, you know, after an inbounds play. Like, there are times where sometimes you become, we've seen athletes become too focused on what the crowd is saying and doing that it becomes bigger than the game. As long as it does become bigger than the game, I love it. Like, it's for me, it's hard not to respect when you hear Kyrie Irving not only, you know, do what he, uh, watch and see what he did on the court, but then hear about it off the court. Like, he's not wrong. Like, I do think athletes sometimes, they're in a tough spot. I get it. Part of the job and part of what you get paid millions of dollars for is to deal with the fans, is to deal with the heckling and the booing and still kind of rise above it. As long as we're not talking about a Ron Artest situation going into the stands and fighting fans, I do think athletes have every right to fire back um, to what fans are saying. Right? It's not a one-way street. This is not like a one-way glass here, right? where you could see them and they can't see us. Or we could scream stuff at athletes and not you know, say stuff back. Look, we've all been in stadiums. We've all been next to fans, whether it's just pure competition, pure hatred, or they're just too boozed up, where you hear fans scream at, you know, opposing players, say some stuff that, you know, would you say I wouldn't, you know, crosses the line sometimes. And most of the time you hear the player just stand there and either pretend to not hear it or not say anything. I got no problem if fans are giving it to Kyrie to give it back to them. I think it's fun. I think it's entertaining. And I think it added more juice to yesterday's game. And as long as, like I said, it doesn't overcome and take over the game, doesn't as long as it doesn't become bigger than the game for that player, I think, you know, if you're a teammate of Kyrie, you got nothing but respect for it. We've seen plenty of players, plenty of athletes just get paralyzed by the moment itself. Forget about the fans getting on you. Just that big stage, that playoff stage. So many now that when the lights are brighter, so many athletes struggle to kind of deal with that pressure and compartmentalize that the game is still the same. To Kyrie's credit, he was not only to uh, able, again, to play really well, he was able to use that fuel, use that energy that the fans were throwing towards him and channel it in a way that, again, led to him having a tremendous night, 39 points at 12 of 20 shooting. 
Now, the big thing is consistency. Again, can you do it Wednesday night? Can you do it again Saturday night? Because the Nets right now are going to need both Katie and Kyrie to have each big nights every single game. And then game one, the one thing it did show you, look, I don't expect Kevin Durant to struggle like he did uh, yesterday. He had a really tough shooting night, uh, 2 of 10 to start in the first half. I think it's safe to assume, and it'd be smart. You don't want to, you know, it'd be very smart to say Kevin Durant's got to bounce back and he's going to be fine the rest of the series. But equally as important, though, as Kevin Durant bouncing back is Kyrie still keeping the same energy, he says, and bringing every single game. Because the one thing we saw yesterday from the Nets is that they're going to need both KD and Kyrie to have big games if they are going to win this series. You can't rely on Bruce Brown. You can't rely on Goran Dragic. You can't rely on Nick Claxton to be giving you 20 points and 10 rebounds every single night. There's not a ton of, of scoring and there's not a ton of reliability outside of the big two. Whereas you look at Boston, they have the depth, whether it's defensively, whether it's offensively, to where if Jason Tatum or Jalen Bryant have a rough night, they could still bounce back and still win in other ways. They could still win on the defensive end of the floor. They could still win with Al Horford and Marcus Smart having big games. The Nets cannot win if either Kyrie or KD has an off night like we saw KD have yesterday. Because they can't win any other way. They can't win on the defensive end of the floor. We give them, we saw how many give up easy baskets yesterday to the Celtics. The <laughs> biggest moment of the game. The Celtics went on a layup. It was an easy basket. Because everyone's either ball watching or everyone's scrambling too far and not staying uh, poised on defense. And we know, again, there's no one else you can rely on if you're the Nets to get the job done for you. So Kyrie, so far is earning his keep. He is showing why he needs to be the running mate of Kevin Durant. Put on a good first display in game one of why he should be going nowhere and why Kevin Durant should not be thinking about bringing in anyone else's offseason. But the reality is, Kevin Durant's going to have to step up his game and they're going to need both Kyrie and Katie to have big nights and efficient nights for the next four, five, six games. Because if not, Celtics are winning this series in even earlier fashion than I thought. That's the reality of the, what the Nets are dealing with here when you build a team that is so top-heavy with Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and no one else. So credit to Kyrie for a very impressive game one yesterday. Credit to him for using all the vitriol that the fans were throwing his way and spin it into a positive in terms of how he played, dropping 39 points. But again, now it's about doing it consistently over and over and over again and channeling that energy... And allowing it to, again, to continue to fuel him now for games 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and maybe 7. With Ka- with Kyrie Irving's, I think, future tie to this postseason, it's a very good start for Kyrie. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Do you agree? Am I on an island here where Kyrie Irving is coming back to the Nets no matter what? Like, I don't think that's the case. If he struggles each of the next 3, 4 games, and the Nets get bounced in 5 games by the Celtics... I can't sit here and tell you Kevin Durant's going to bring back Kyrie Irving and run the band back together. If you're Kevin Durant, time is ticking. You need a reliable partner. Kyrie Irving, this is his time to show he's a reliable scorer. And when the going gets tough, the tough get going. We've yet to see that so far, but it was a good start for Kyrie. But I'm curious your thoughts here. Do you agree? Is Kyrie Irving's future of the Nets tied to how he plays this postseason? You can tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. You can write on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Radio Network, or check out our show page, The Ryan Hickey Show on Facebook, or on YouTube, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Speaking of futures, 
We're going to transition to the NFL. Kyler Murray's future could be in question. He made a big-time demand last week, basically saying, no new contract, I'm not playing. The Cardinals have only one person to blame, and it's themselves. We'll discuss the Kyrie Irving, uh, the Kyler Murray future when we return on the Reineke Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Appreciate you making us a part of your Monday morning. A lot of disgruntlement here on a Monday. I hope you had a great weekend. I did as well. Happy belated Easter. Happy belated Passover. But NBA playoffs were underway. I thought it was a, a good, joyful weekend. We had Kyler Murray. Oh, I'm sorry, Kyler Murray. We had uh, Kyrie Irving yesterday flipping the bird and, and, you know, cursing back at Boston Celtics fans all throughout game number one. No, you know, no love lost between those two sides. And even leading into the weekend, we had Kyler Murray now expressing his disgruntlement with the Cardinals. And this entire situation for me has been a clinic of what not to do. The Cardinals themselves, the Arizona Cardinals, have basically gave a memo, basically draw, you know, ha- have written a handbook to the other 31 teams in the NFL of how not to handle your young quarterback. Because they couldn't have, have really so far had an offseason um, with Kyler Murray wanting a new deal and them kind of ignoring Kyler Murray. You couldn't have handled this so far any any more poor. This has been a total disaster a total train wreck, and there's only one person the Cardinals can blame. It is themselves. Kyler Murray now is at the point where he is either demanding a new contract or refusing to play for the Cardinals. And again, there's only one person, there's only one organization the Cardinals can blame for this, and it's themselves. Because despite the fact that Kyler Murray's on-field play doesn't warrant a brand new contract extension, by right now giving Cliff Kingsbury a contract extension, by giving the GM Steve Kime a contract extension, they have basically put Kyler Murray in a position of power. They said, hey, Cliff, you're doing a great job. Here's a contract extension for coaching the team. Hey, Steve, you've done a great job as the GM putting a, a team around Kyler Murray in order for us to have success. Here's a contract extension. What they haven't done yet is say, hey, Kyler, you're the quarterback. You have done so far a good job in getting us back on track, turn this organization around from, you know, deadbeat dumpster fire to now at least playoff contender every single year. Here's a contract extension. They haven't done it. And when they did so to, to the GM, when they did so to the head coach, it is very perplexing. It doesn't make any sense why they haven't done so yet for the quarterback. Now, I will say, I do think a deal is going to get done this offseason. I would be shocked if Kyler Murray enters week number one without a brand new contract extension. So I don't think that he'll hold out. I don't think we're going to see this, you know, have a, a training camp drama to it where we're going to be sitting there and watching Kyler on the sidelines and hear his frustration or get to the point where he, you know, tries to force a trade or is treated. I do think in the end, by the time week one of the 2022 season comes around, Kyler Murray will be with the Cardinals and will have a brand new deal. But what I don't understand... What I don't really get is why the Cardinals 
are making this harder on themselves than it has to be. They should have already seen what happens in their own division when you kind of piss off your quarterback for no reason. Ask the Seahawks right now and Russell Wilson, who the Seahawks kissed away a top five quarterback in his prime because the head coach was outdated and really didn't understand 2021 football and instead made Russell Wilson's life harder, not easier. The Cardinals right there should have learned that lesson. Hmm. Maybe it's worth kind of catering to our quarterback. Maybe it's not worth trying to get in a fight over dollars and cents and instead make sure he's happy so that he doesn't force his way out and we're kind of left, you know, with nothing in our hands standing there and now the Seahawks have no choice but to rebuild. Like I will say, we are starting to see a trend now in the NFL. Because outside of just money, right? As we know, a lot of players are still motivated by the money. Uh, by money, they'll go wherever the most money is. But you're also seeing now a lot of players prioritize happiness, wanting to be with that certain team, wanting to play for a certain head coach or a certain GM or a certain city or quarterback. We are now starting to see more and more players emphasize and prioritize happiness either equal then or sometimes even greater to money. Like I will say this, I don't want to make this about a whole generational thing, you know, Generation Z versus Millennials versus, you know, Gen X and Baby Boomers and stuff, but there's been a lot of flack towards Millennials and Gen Z, people that are, I'm 27, so my age and below, right? Really, people my age right now, 27, 20, are the, the age of quarterbacks that are getting these brand new deals and are trying to make, you know, generational wealth. So people in this generation, I will say there's been a lot, you know, against laziness, selfishness, right? There's been a lot of a uh, lot said negatively the people in, that are millennials and Gen Z. But what I will say is the one thing people my age have prioritized have start to realize is that happiness is just as important as money. Right? If you have a job that pays you a ton of money, but you're miserable, is it really worth it? And we are starting to see more and more people say, no, it's not. You know, getting out of college $100,000 to work at a bank, but you're working 15-hour days, six days a week, your boss stinks, you're, you hate the work you do, you're miserable. Sure, you have a, you know, a really nice apartment. Sure, you can afford to buy nice clothes, but you really don't have much time for friends. And anytime you get home, your job is so miserable that you take it out on your friends and your family and you're miserable all the time. You really can't have any fun. We have seen plenty of jobs where the money is there, but people stick with it uh, for the money and say, forget about the happiness. I'll figure it out or I'll eventually get through it. Well, now we're starting to see more and more players in the NFL, forget just people, you know, in the everyday world. We are seeing more and more people in the NFL start to say, you know what? If I'm not happy, I don't care about the money. I'm going to go somewhere where even if I get less money, but I'm going to be happier. We saw with Devontae Adams. Devontae Adams left more money on the table in Green Bay. He could have signed and stuck at the Packers and gotten more money, but instead said, you know what? I don't like the way they've been treating me. I'm not happy with the organization and the lack of attention they have gotten. They have, you know, paid me the last year or so. I think that I am, you know, that they have taken me for granted at times. So I'm going to go to the Raiders. I'm going to sign for less money, but I'm going to go to a place that I know wants and appreciates what I bring to this team. So you have the latest example of Devontae Adams leaving money on the table in order to stay or order to go to a team that appreciates it. He didn't want to be in Green Bay, not get the respect he feels like he deserves, but stick it out because of the money 
or stick it out because he's still playing with Aaron Rodgers. Devonta Adams prioritized his happiness. And now that that trend is starting to, I think, become more prevalent in the NFL, this is what the Cardinals have to watch out for. And this is why I don't understand why the Cardinals are playing this unnecessary game of chicken with Kyler Murray. Because guess what? If Kyler says, you know what? I don't care about the money. I want to just go where a team will, will appreciate me and I don't think it's here in Arizona. He's done. He's not re-signed with the Cardinals. It doesn't matter what offer they give him. He is going to want out and the Cardinals are going to be left without a quarterback in a league that is ever more important or the most important position in all sports is quarterback. So we are starting to see, if you look around the rest of the NFL, it's not just Devontae Adams. Russell, uh, Russell Wilson to the Broncos. He left Seattle because he was unhappy and he wanted to go to a team where he felt appreciated and wanted. That was uh, Denver. Deshaun Watson. Forget, I know everything, even before the off the field issues uh, came up and he was doing things he should have been doing, allegedly. He wanted out of Houston first before anything else happened because he was unhappy with the way the organization was running business, conducting themselves, and how they didn't respect him. He wanted to say in the head coach and GM search, and the uh, Texas basically said, sure, we'll do that, and then uh, right away went the other way and said, ah, we're not going to listen to you. He didn't feel respected. So you know what Deshaun Watson, said? Deshaun Watson said, even though I just signed an extension here months ago, I'm out. And he was going to be traded earlier. Again, if obviously, as we know, everything off the field didn't happen. But before that happened, Deshaun Watson was done with the Texans because he didn't feel they respected him. He wasn't happy in Houston, and he said, you know what, I'm going to do something about it. Matthew Stafford now is more cordial because kind of the lines of Matthew Stafford are both on the same page here. But Matthew Stafford basically said, look, I'm tired of losing. I'm tired of rebuilding. I want to go to a team that has a support system around me where they're going to try to make the playoffs and try to win a Super Bowl. The, the Lions are sympathetic with that. They agreed, okay, you know, it's time for us two to go in a different direction. They traded them to, obviously, the Rams. We know that worked out well. But the, the reason why Stafford was traded was because he wanted somewhere else to go. Even Tom Brady. For all the success he had in New England with Bill Belichick, after a while, that relationship soured between him and Bill to the point where Tom said, you know what, I'm going elsewhere. I know the success we had for two decades has been has been tremendous. He's going to hitch his wagons to a place in Tampa Bay that has been one of the you know most downtrodden and losing organizations in NFL history. But he's going to go there because he likes the way Bruce Arians and Jason Light kind of run their ship a little bit lighter, a little bit looser. And Tom had the freedom that he didn't have in New England. So even guys like Tom Brady, who've had epic success in New England, chose happiness over, let's say, guaranteed winning. So players know they're going to get the money, and now the money is generational wealth, whether it's $140, $140 million or $145 million. At some point, players are now going to equally factor in their happiness of whether they like playing for this head coach, whether they like playing for this team and playing in this city, or whether they want to go somewhere else and feel more respected or more loved. So, it, again, it goes back to the point where you are seeing more of a trend of all these quarterbacks and players that just listed of going to different teams, frankly, and firstly motivated for their happiness and how the Cardinals don't think that that's going to happen with Kyler Murray. Like, why would the Cardinals try to continue to irritate Kyler Murray when they know, when they have seen right in front of their eyes the last two years, 
plenty of quarterbacks leave their organizations because they were unhappy. So just because you think that you're going to wave a blank check in front of Kyler Murray's face eventually, that he's going to be A-OK, is not the case. And it's almost like the Cardinals weren't expecting Kyler Murray to want a new deal. Like, And it's just befuddling. You gave the GM a brand new contract. You gave the head coach and Cliff Kingsbury, who, if you listen to the show, I said should have been fired the day after the wild card game because this, to me, Cliff was not a, a, a coach you can rely on in the second half of seasons. He is someone who is great short September and October. Congratulations. But when the games get bigger and more important, when the calendar flips from Thanksgiving to December and January football, Cliff is not a coach you can rely on or that is where he truly does get exposed. He cannot adjust. He cannot out-scheme good defenses, in my opinion. And for me, I would have brought in a coach that I know come January can get the job done and lead this team to multiple playoff wins. I don't think Cliff Kingsbury is the guy. The Cardinals obviously do because they just gave him a brand new contract extension through 2027. But how can you give Cliff a contract extension and not give Kyler one? It doesn't make sense. And according to reports, according to Tom Palacero, the Cardinals haven't even given Kyler an offer. Forget the fact that they're, you know, let's say far apart on numbers where Kyler, let's say, wants 250 and the Cardinals want 150 and they're nowhere close. The Cardinals haven't even presented a contract extension offer to the quarterback. So now Kyler has no choice but to go public with his disgruntlement. And pretty soon, if silence is, you know, Silence continues and status quo continues with the Cardinals in terms of, you know, negotiating with Kyler Murray. We can get to a point where the money might be irrelevant and uh, irrelevant, and Kyler could request a trade no matter what. And then what are you going to do if you're Arizona? You're with a bad head coach, and then you're going to be soon without a, a young quarterback in his prime because he got sick and tired of the games you've been playing and sick and tired of the disrespect. As soon as you gave Cliff a contract extension, you should have known this day was coming with Kyler and you should have been ready for a contract offer. Now again, I think a contract will get done. But the Cardinals, in my opinion, are playing an unnecessary and frankly dangerous game. Playing chicken right now with a quarterback and Kyler Murray and banking on the fact that he is going to choose the Cardinals uh, just for the money and nothing else, I think is foolish. We've seen now too many instances of players picking happiness over money. And it's foolish, I think, to think Kyler will be any different. So instead of having an offseason where if you're the Cardinals, again, you got off to a 10-2 start and crumbled down the stretch, got embarrassed in the Wilds card game, had one of the worst offensive performances from your head coach calling plays and from your quarterback playing the game. Instead of focusing this offseason on getting better, improving that, all the Cardinals have done has brought unnecessary drama upon them and their organization. Instead of focusing and improving the offense, now all anytime the Cardinals are in the news, it's about Kyler Murray scrubbing his social media of all Cardinals content. It's about his, his agent, Eric Burkhart, going to Adam Schefter and saying, we want a new deal. Basically, we are presenting a contract offer to the Cardinals because they have not even talked to us so far. It is now Kyler Murray basically saying, no contract, no me. You don't want to give me a new deal, I'm not playing. All this has been unnecessary. All of this only hurts the Cardinals moving forward, not making them better, not getting them in a position to get any closer to winning a playoff game. 
So this is, a, to me, a dangerous strategy by the Cardinals, and I think it's one that is not worth it. Again, I said it before in the beginning. I don't think Kyler Murray uh, play alone is is has merit for a contract extension. I really don't. I wouldn't have paid Kyler Murray because of how he played. Because I don't think he's played extremely well. And again, if you can't trust your quarterback to play well in the biggest games, he is not deserving of $40, $45 million. And so far, Kyler Murray, the one thing he has shown in the last two years, is he has not been able to play his best in the big game. So I've been consistent in the fact that I'd rather see it first, then pay, rather than pay a quarterback and hope, hope, that he could eventually be a quarterback to lead you to the Super Bowl. I think Kyler Murray is very talented, but so far in the playoffs or even down the stretch, he has played some of his worst football so far of his career. But, but, the reason why I'm telling the Cardinals to pay him, the reason why I've changed my tune, is because you paid Cliff Kingsbury. You can't pay Cliff and not pay Kyler. They're a package deal. Either one gets, or either both get an extension, or none do. You gave Cliff one, now you gotta give Kyler one. And again, it's a foolish and dangerous game to play when you are having your quarterback go public multiple times now about his frustration of even lack of contract talks. Because we have seen player after player now say, you know what? You don't show me respect? I'm out of here. I'll take less to play for another team. And it's foolish to think Kyler would be any different than Deshaun Watson, than Russell Wilson, than Devontae Adams, than Tom Brady. Players have started prioritizing happiness on an equal, if not greater, playing field than money. It's time for the Cardinals to wake up and realize that. Because the longer they go with their head buried in the sand, just thinking, okay, we'll eventually give Kyler a big deal and he'll suck it up, the more foolish you're going to be and the more likely you're going to be of playing 2022 without Kyler Murray. So I think he'll get a new deal. But all this drama, all this frustration between Kyler and the organization playing out publicly, I think long-term puts danger of Kyler finishing his career at the Cardinals, of keeping Kyler Murray in the desert for the entirety of his career. That only, to me, gets less and less as the days continue on and the frustration from Kyler's camp towards the Cardinals only mounts. So I'm curious your your thoughts here. Are you with me? Should the Cardinals give Kyler Murray a contract extension or should they say, you know what, suck it up, play better, and we'll see, you know, if you if you if your play is worthy of a contract extension. Or do you think Kyler's gonna not even, you know, get to the point where he's gonna play for the Cardinals? Do you think he will force his way out and be playing for a different team in 2022? Love to hear your thoughts on Twitter. Ryan Hickey Show is our show handle, Facebook, Worldwide Sports Ray Network, or the Ryan Hickey Show, and we're on YouTube. Worldwide Sports Network. So you can comment there. You can tweet us at those different handles on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube. Get your thoughts. Is Kyler Murray worth a contract extension? Is he worthy of a contract extension? And is there a chance he's playing on another team next year? If he doesn't get a contract, could he be playing for a different team in 2022? So we get your thoughts. And when we return, speaking of frustration, we have seen a lot of wide receivers get paid this offseason. Who's the next one? So there are a few disgruntled wide receivers right now that are making their frustrations known. Who is the next receiver to get paid in the NFL? We'll discuss that when the Ryan Hickey Show returns on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.
Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So one of the things I will say, I've learned now in my adult life, especially as you can tell, right, in the in the brand new uh, studio, which is my New York City apartment, living on my own for the first time since college, I do think kind of being back on your own um, teaches you some lessons that either you forgot about or are kind of learning the hard way. And I think one of those lessons I've learned that I think everyone has learned one way or another, is that sometimes paying more for the convenience is absolutely worth it. Now, whether it's laundry, trusting that, all right, you know, if I ship this laundry out, I know they'll do a good job. I know nothing's going to get lost. I know, you know, everything's going to be clean. Nothing's going to get shrunk um, compared to if you want to either do it yourself or if you go to, you know, a, a cheaper laundromat, if you will, um, where prices are lower. We all have those situations where sometimes the, che- the, sometimes the cheaper option is either more hassle, more work, more of a headache, or just untrustworthy. So there is definitely situations where paying more, especially for the convenience, is worth it and is worth the lack of a headache. And three teams, I think, have to learn that, learn that lesson this offseason, are the Commanders, the 49ers, and the Titans. Because all three have a wide receiver that would like to get paid, whether it's A.J. Brown and the Titans, Terry McLaurin with the Commanders, or Debo Samuel with the uh, with the 49ers. And I think the wise thing for all three of these teams to do is pay more, give them an extension now, even with a lot of receivers getting big-time deals, and save yourself the headache of always having to answer questions the rest of the offseason. Save yourself the drama that comes along with everyone talking about and speculating whether a deal is going to get done. And basically... Take the vultures, which are the other teams circling to get these receivers, take them out of it. Save yourself the headache, save yourself the attention, and just pay the receivers now in order to not only make them happy, but again, kind of give you peace of mind. Because this morning at Adam Schefter of ESPN tweeting that both Debo Samuel and A.J. Brown will skip off-season workouts because they want a new deal. Now, to be fair... Most of these off-season workouts around this time are voluntary anyway. So whether they had new deals or not, no guarantee they'd be there. They don't have to be there. They're not skipping mandatory workouts. It's really, in the grand scheme of things, not a, a terribly big deal. Terry McLaurin, who also wants a new deal, will be at voluntary workouts uh, with the commanders. But again, he is someone who also is looking for a brand new contract. So it's not like we have a holdout situation happening or we have a lot of drama so far with this news. But I think it just serves as a reminder and a good time to talk about these three receivers, in my opinion, should all get paid this offseason and all get paid relatively soon because the options right now for these other three teams are bleak. Like if you look at it, whether it's A.J. Brown, whether it's Debo Samuel, whether it's Terry McLaurin, all three of those receivers are too valuable to their respective team and are frankly too young to part with. Because if you don't give an extension, you're going to have to trade them. And I don't see the benefit of trading a young talent receiver and getting draft picks back in order to do what? Hope that you draft another receiver of that same caliber, which is no guarantee. So like you see like the, the almost backwards logic, oh, you're going to trade your you know really solid, really young receiver in order to hopefully draft another guy that has the same skill, same talent as the guy you just had and traded away because you didn't want to pay. 
So get it over with now, Commanders. Write the check, Savers of the Headache, 49ers, and use some common sense Titans in getting these three receivers paid. And again, save yourself will be a headache. Save yourself from answering questions. And frankly, save yourself from the acrimony of having these deals and this drama drag out through the rest of the offseason and through the summer. We just talked about Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. How we have seen now multiple players, multiple players in big-time situations, go either leave their team with money on the table or leave their team outright and prioritize their happiness in playing somewhere else. So the longer these questions drag out the lo- and the more drama that is associated with their contract situation for Debo Samuel, for Tamar McLaurin, and for A.J. Brown, well, if you make them unhappy, they're going to go somewhere else. It doesn't matter the check that you offer them. It's going to be. They're going to say, you know what? Screw you. I'm out of here. And you're going to really lose out big time then on a receiver leaving because you didn't give them the respect they feel like they deserve. Like if you look at the 49ers and Debo Samuel, right? They are a match made in heaven. So if you're the 49ers, trading Debo Samuel or not paying him this offseason doesn't make any sense for two reasons. Number one, he is a perfect fit for what Kyle Shanahan does in offense. He is basically a one-man wrecking ball. He is a walking mismatch that defenses are having a really tough time slowing down, and we saw it in the postseason. But even before we got to the postseason, where Debo Samuel was really a star running back, in the regular season, he had over 1,400 receiving yards, he had 365 rushing yards and eight rushing touchdowns. He had more rushing touchdowns than receiving touchdowns. But that just shows you the threat and the versatility that Debo Samuel brings to this offense and how with a creative mind in Kyle Shanahan, how you're always unable, uh, always able to unlock Debo Samuel. And no matter what defense you're playing, whether you split him out wide, put him in the slot, or put him in the backfield, he is always able to find the mismatch and exploit whatever the defense is trying to do. And as we know, we saw in the postseason where he was really used as a running back and he really had a lot of success in that role. So he fits exactly with Kyle Shanahan's trying to do. And again, he is kind of one of those players. I know it's starting to get a little bit overused, but I'm going to use it here. He is one of those players that's one of one. He is a unicorn. So if you trade Debo Samuel, do you know how hard it is to draft another Debo Samuel? It's almost impossible to do. He is such a unique and specific skill set that is, you know, able to to function as a receiver and running back in part because how his body is com- is composed. That you trading away Debo Samuel, there it's almost going to be impossible to find someone who can replicate what he does and what he brings to this offense. So I don't think there's any chance. I don't think it makes any sense for the 49ers to either trade or not re-sign Debo Samuel because he is so unique and fits his offense perfectly. Not to mention, he is the perfect weapon to take pressure off of Trey Lance. Hey, let's just think about it. Whether you're John Lynch, the GM, whether you're Kyle Shanahan, the head coach, your job when a rookie quarterback like, uh, or rookie quarterback, but let's just say for playing terms. I know Trey Lance is a rookie last year, but in terms of starting a full season, it's going to be Trey Lance's first full year as a starter. Your job is to make his transition as easy as possible. There's already a lot of pressure for what you did in trading up and and giving away all those draft picks. When you had Jimmy Garoppolo on the roster, when you've gotten to a Super Bowl with Jimmy G, when you got him to an NFC title game this past year with Jimmy G, there was a lot of pressure on Trey Lance to come in and play well right away. Fair or not, 
There's expectations that are high in part because of the talent on this team, which they have one of the best rosters in the NFL, a really good head coach. And again, we've seen Jimmy G be a pedestrian quarterback at times, but still win games and still get this team deep in the playoffs. So there's pressure on Trey Lance to have success right away. Well, no better way to make Trey Lance's job easy, no easier way to take some pressure off of his shoulders than by having a mismatch, a weapon like Debo Samuel on the field where defenses now, instead of attacking Trey Lance or trying to have all their focus on stopping him, now defenses have to worry about Debo Samuel a ton, have to worry about George Kittle a lot, and it makes Trey Lance's job a lot easier. When you have a versatile weapon like Debo Samuel, you make Trey Lance's job 10 times easier than if he wasn't there. So I don't see the benefit. I don't see the reason why if you're the 49ers, when you are in a Super Bowl window, even with a young quarterback, how it behooves you, how it makes sense to move on and not pay a receiver like Debo Samuel. And again, kind of going back to Kyler Murray and the Cardinals, the longer this drags out, the more drama that there is between the player and the, the team the higher the risk, the higher the chance you are taking that that player gets to a point where he says, forget the money, I'm leaving, no matter what, I don't want more money, I will take less in order to be in, uh, in order to be somewhere else. Then you're either forced to trade him like the Packers had to do in trading Devontae Adams to the Raiders because he turned down money to be in uh, Green Bay in order to go to a place where he felt appreciated, or you are like the Patriots, where you lose Tom Brady in frequency and you get nothing back. So it makes no sense for the 49ers, in my opinion, to let this drag out longer and not pay Debo Samuel. If you were to look at a team like the Titans, kind of similar in terms of where this team stands, the Titans are in a Super Bowl or bust mode right now. As we know, right, this team is built uh, around Derrick Henry. But the thing is, even though A.J. Brown is not a centerpiece of the offense the way Debo Samuel is to the 49ers, when you build a team around a running back like Tennessee has done, This team is not built to last very long. This Super Bowl window is not created to last, let's say, seven, eight years. If it was built around a receiver or if it was built more more likelihood uh, a quarterback. So when you build it around Derrick Henry, and Derrick Henry is going to be, or already is, 20 years old this season, there's not many peak years left in Derrick Henry's body. That's just the reality. So you got to capitalize now on what is a very small window that's only shrinking in order to get the most cracks and most chances of winning the Super Bowl. So whether that's two or three years left of Derrick Henry's prime for this Titans team to truly capitalize on trying to win uh, the big game on the back of Derrick Henry, you got to make sure you have a playmaking wide receiver on the outside to really benefit and comment the offense and even make Derrick Henry's life a little bit easier. Because A.J. Brown is the only receiving threat the Titans have. I know they brought in Julio Jones last year, the guy couldn't stay healthy, and they already moved on from Julio just one year in. So A.J. Brown's the only consistent threat Tennessee has, and the only real go-to receiver Ryan Tannehill has. So it, to me, it makes no sense if you trade away A.J. Brown or let him walk in, in free agency, which I don't think will happen. The more likely it is if they don't get a deal done and get traded. But either way, it doesn't make much sense for the Titans to not keep A.J. Brown in Tennessee and then instead get draft picks back and then try to draft the next A.J. Brown. You can't expect a rookie wide receiver, even though we have seen guys like Jamar Chase come in, you know, burst onto the scene like he did in Cincinnati and help lead the Bengals to a Super Bowl appearance in year number one. 
And even though Justin Jefferson the year before that came in and really, you know, broke a ton of rookie records for the Vikings, there is not, you, know, you cannot realistically rely on drafting next Jamar Chase or Justin Jefferson if you trade away A.J. Brown for a first or second round pick. You can't do it. You can't hang your hat on getting lucky in the draft, which is what that was, and having a guy burst onto the scene and take over the league right away. Rookies usually struggle. Rookies usually take their time and kind of getting their feet wet and getting comfortable. The Titans don't have time. They don't have time for a rookie to figure it out. They don't have time for a rookie to get their feet wet before making an impact. Again, the time to win for Tennessee is right now with Derrick Henry still in his prime. So you got to capitalize on that. And one of the best ways to do so is by keeping A.J. Brown in Tennessee and giving him a new deal. Because not to mention, too, we know Ryan Tannehill is not a quarterback that can be trusted in the playoffs. We know Ryan Tannehill is not a quarterback that makes other players around him better. He needs to be uplifted by the rest of the team, not vice versa. There's a reason why in the playoffs, Ryan Tannehill has literally been awful. Look at the stats. Look at the numbers. I don't care they went to an AFC title game back in 2019. That's starting to get further and further away now. They went to an AFC title game only because Derrick Henry was literally untackable. Untackleable. Getting that right. I apologize for that. But 2020 in that loss to the Ravens, Ryan Tannehill stunk. In the loss to the Bengals, he threw three picks this past year. Ryan Tannehill is not a quarterback that makes others around him better or that you can even rely on in the playoffs to be good. So you need as many talented players around him as possible in order for Tennessee to make a run in the postseason. So by trading away A.J. Brown, it's counterintuitive. Instead of playing chicken, sign A.J. Brown and get on with your offseason. It's very, very simple. And for the commanders, this is more from a strictly um, PR perspective. From just a, a, a goodwill to the fans of the rest of the league, the commanders from a public relations perspective cannot afford to trade Terry McLaurin. He has been one of the few bright spots on this team recently where there's been a lot of negativity and a lot of, of bad press surrounding this team. Some of it on the field where we saw the defense in the first half really struggle. The quarterback situation has not been able to be, uh, be figured out really the last few years. And obviously, as we know, Dan Snyder, enough set. There's been so much negativity surrounding the commanders that if they want even any hope of either keeping a fan base in Washington and getting fans to the stadium or having fans believe this team and this regime can turn it around or just for one day avoid being the pinata in the press and on social media, you got to re-sign Terry McLaurin. He's been a model citizen so far in Washington. He consistently produces so far throughout his career and the guy doesn't cause a fuss. Again, we just talked about it's voluntary, so I, no one's holding out. It's Most of these players wouldn't be there anyway. But Debo Samuel, A.J. Brown are not going to be at off-season workouts when they start this week for the 49ers and Titans, respectively. They want new deals, and they're starting to make it known. Terry McLaurin wants a new deal. He is still going to be there. He is going to voluntary workouts. It doesn't seem like he's going to hold out or create this big fuss or public relations nightmare or social media firestorm by you know deleting all the commander's picks on his social media. He is going about this the right way, and you got to just reward the guys who are good soldiers, who are good workers, who show up every day, don't make excuses, don't create any drama, instead just do the job and produce at a high level, no matter who's there. Because again, unlike Debo Samuel, unlike A.J. Brown, Terry McLaurin has no one around him, and he still has been able to produce. 
Look at the quarterbacks that have been throwing at uh, Terry McLaurin so far the first three years of his career. He has been one, still one of the best and most underrated receivers in all the NFL, in part because the quarterbacks have struggled getting him the ball consistently, and there's really also no other threat on the offense that takes defense's attention away from Terry. So reward a player of his um, stature, of his status in the team. Don't make him sweat. Don't drag this on. And again, do yourself a favor, Commanders. Get your name in the media for a good reason. Be the first. Beat the 49ers to the punch and beat the Titans to the punch and get your wide receiver who wants to get paid, get him paid first. Save yourself a little cash. But also, maybe do an act of goodwill. And not to mention, give Carson Wentz a chance to succeed. Look, I'm a Colts fan. I saw Carson Wentz firsthand last year. I've seen a lot of Commanders fans trying to talk themselves into Carson Wentz. This was exactly me a year ago. I'm not going to pretend I I knew from the start Carson Wentz is going to be a bust. I had a lot of faith that Frank Reich and this Colts roster would be enough for Carson Wentz to kind of get back to his early Philly days and have success. I was wrong. But I believed Carson Wentz could have success. And if the, if the commanders believe Carson Wentz can have success, which is why they traded for him in the first place, you got to give him a chance to succeed, which would mean putting a good receiver at his disposal in Terry McLaurin. Give him a chance. So you need Carson Wentz to succeed by keeping Terry around. And again, reward one of your better players and one of your model citizens that has gone everything and has gone about everything the right way. And right now, bring yourself... If nothing else, bring yourself some good press and have us, anytime we talk about Commanders, not be about Dan Snyder. So whether it's the Commanders, whether it's the Titans, or whether it's the 49ers, for me, it makes all the sense in the world to pay their receivers now, get it out of the way, and save themselves the drama. Because like I mentioned before, the longer this carries on, the more disgruntled Debo, Terry, or A.J. Brown get the more that fuels speculation, the more that motivates the vultures that are circling these organizations right now, trying to get these uh, receivers, pry them away from these teams, the more that they start to circle and get confident. Teams like the Jets, who have been in almost every receiver so far that's been traded, they've, they desperately want a receiver for Zach Wilson. They were in on Tyreek Hill, didn't work out. Now they are very in on McLaurin, very in on A.J. Brown, very in on Debo. They are circling as vultures around these teams. The Packers are circling around the Titans, circling around the the Commanders, waiting for things to go south to see if they can swoop in and steal a very talented and young receiver and try to make up for the loss of Devonta Adams. So the quicker you sign these receivers, even if it's for a little bit more money than you would like, even if it's a, a little bit higher price tag than you feel comfortable for, it is worth it in the end because, again, Sometimes, paying more for convenience is worth it. Getting these receivers signed now and having the convenience of having a drama-free offseason, I think is worth it. Put the vultures out to pasture. Have the Jets leave your organization alone. Have the Packers leave your organization alone. Have the media and social media leave your organization alone by signing your young receivers right now. You avoid the headache, you avoid the drama, and you do yourself a favor in the long run. So I think it makes all the sense in the world now for A.J. Brown to get a new deal from the Titans, for Terry McLaurin to get a new deal from the Commanders, and for Debo Samuel to get a new deal from the 49ers soon. Soon. Save yourself a headache. Don't have this play out any longer and get 
the deal done. So we have seen a lot of different receivers get paid this offseason. We saw Devontae Adams get a brand new deal. We saw Tyree Kill get a brand new deal. Who was the next receiver to get paid? Is it A.J. Brown? Is it Debo Samuel? Is it Terry McLaurin? Who is the next receiver that's going to get a fat payday? I think it's going to be Debo. How about you? Love to get your thoughts here on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter. You can write on Facebook. Our, our show page is Worldwide Sports Radio Network, or the Ryan Hickey Show is a brand new page created. Make sure you throw us a like. Every single um, show that goes live on Facebook is put on that page. Every single clip we put out after the show is live on that page as well. So make sure you throw us a like at uh, the Ryan Hickey Show on Facebook. To up to date, they've been going on with the show and all the content that comes out of it. Also on Twitter, YouTube, or I already said Twitter, on YouTube, I should say, we're there at Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So when we return, I want to circle back to the NBA because with opening weekend of the playoffs in the books, with everyone playing so far a game number one in their series, I always think it's always natural when there's a buildup, when there's excitement, to always overreact um, to some of those situations or some of those outcomes that we see in a positive or a negative way. So i got a few different questions I want to ask you. Is it an overreaction or is it a proper reaction? We'll discuss when the Reinick Show returns right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show, back with you here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So, first weekend of the NBA playoffs in the books. Every single game won from all eight series are now official. So I think now that there always is anticipation, right? we always get excited for the NBA playoffs. And I think with that excitement comes a lot of overreaction sometimes or sometimes jumping to conclusions too soon. So I got a few questions here I want to throw out. Is what I'm saying a proper reaction or an overreaction to what we saw from the first weekend of the NBA playoffs? Let's start with the Warriors. Can Jordan Poole, he can be relied upon in this postseason. I think that's a proper reaction. What we saw from Jordan Poole on Saturday night is no fluke. It's not an anomaly. Scoring 30 points like he did on Saturday night against the Nuggets should not come as a shock. Because really, since Steph Curry got hurt with his foot injury and had to miss the final 13 games of the season, Jordan Poole's been the most consistent and one of the most dynamic scorers on this Warriors team. He has shown you so far in a larger sample size that he can absolutely be relied upon. So even though this was his first playoff moment, if you will, on Saturday night, he absolutely can be relied upon for the Warriors. Because if we go back to those 13 games, the final 13 games of the regular season when Steph Curry hurt his foot as the Celtics and couldn't finish the season. In those 13 games where basically Jordan Poole replaced Steph Curry, he averaged 26 points per game in that stretch and was also very efficient in doing so. So there's no reason, at least in my mind, to think his game one explosion is going to tail off anytime soon. And especially when you look now that everyone is, we'll say at least back on the court, right? Clay's back on the court. Steph obviously did return for game one, even though he came off the bench. He is still, that threat is out there. The Warriors still have so many offensive threats and weapons on the court when Jordan Poole's out there that he's still going to receive favorable matchups throughout the rest of the postseason. Right? Despite Steph's injury, 
despite the fact that he's having one of the worst years, if not the worst year, from a statistical standpoint, uh, from the three-point arc, he's still dangerous. Like, I don't think all of a sudden teams are going to say, oh, Steph Curry, scrub, we're not going to, you know, guard him or we're going to put our third or fourth best defender on him. He is still going to command a lot of attention from every single team he plays. Clay is getting his rhythm back. He was hitting a ton of threes on Saturday night as well. So with those two Splash Brothers now, at least being on the court for the first time in three years in the postseason, that is still going to give Jordan Poole favorable matchups, and they can take advantage of those like he did Saturday night. So Jordan Poole being relied upon and being a, a serious contributor to this Warriors team like he was on Saturday night, scoring 30 points, absolutely a proper reaction. The Jazz, the Utah Jazz won game number one in Dallas on Saturday to get the playoffs kicked off. Here's a statement. Game two is a must win for the Jazz. Is that a proper reaction or an overreaction? I think it's a proper reaction, to be completely honest here. Utah has a real chance tonight to put a stranglehold on this series and kind of put the series away right away. The reason why, even though Utah is up 1-0... Even though Utah won game one on the road, Utah, for me, this is still a must-win game number two. Is because you cannot give the Mavericks any sort of hope in this series. You win game two, you basically put your foot down and squash them. Losing game number two, I think, really allows the Mavericks some hope, some confidence. Even though you're going on the road if you're Dallas for game number three, and expect, especially if Luka does return, that you feel like you could still win this series. Winning game two on Monday night, tonight, for Utah, puts, them in a, you know, puts obviously Dallas in an 0-2 hole. You're going back to Utah for game number three. It's going to be a raucous atmosphere. That, to me, puts Utah in the driver's seat and has a chance to bury this series and give Dallas no hope. Luka Doncic, look, we'll see if he can play tonight. It sounds like it's going to go down to the wire. I would be still surprised, all things considered, if he does play tonight. Uh, but even if he does... I mean, how limited is he going to be? How good can he be? But if you are Dallas and you either win tonight with Luka not playing or with him extremely limited, well, you only got to think he's only going to feel a little bit better and be able to do a little bit more and play a little bit longer as the series goes along. So again, it goes back to that hope factor. The longer you allow the Mavericks to stay around, the longer you give Luka Doncic to get that calf back to a point where he can still make plays and being. 65, 70% of what Luka Doncic can be. If he can bring that in game five, six, or seven, like the Jazz are in trouble here. So you win game two, you basically put the series on ice right away. And now all of a sudden, game three, you win at home and this series is over. Whereas you lose tonight, even if Luka doesn't play and he returns for game three, this changes the series completely. So here's a, a huge chance right here to just kill the morale kill the will of the Mavericks and put the series already on the brink of being over. That's why for me, it's a proper reaction to say game number two today for the Utah Jazz, even though they're up 1-0, is a must win. We did see a two seed go down in the West. That was the Memphis Grizzlies. They lost to the the Timberwolves on Saturday afternoon. Grizzlies are in trouble. Is that an overreaction or a proper reaction? I think it's an overreaction. Look, the reality is, in game number one, the Timberwolves played a tremendous game. They played great. 
Cronfany Towns was unstoppable. Anthony Edwards, again in a big moment, continued to rise up and continued to play some tremendous basketball. But the thing with the series, the thing about the reason why we don't see too many upsets in the NBA come postseason time is because in these seven-game series, more times than not, more often than not, the talented team, the better team, wins out in the end. Sure, you can have one game go a certain way, but you have to ask that team, like the Timberwolves, to repeat what they did three more times, and I don't think they will. So I, to me, have no doubt Memphis will bounce back. I think they'll win game two, and I think they will win this series. Like I said, water always does find its level. When you look at the Grizzlies, what they've done this regular season so far, they're one of the best defensive teams in all the NBA. They have the sixth best defensive rating in the league in the regular season. So I don't think they're going to be giving up 130 points on a nightly basis like they did on Saturday in Game 1 to the Wolves. So again, even though Carl Anthony Towns bounced back from his awful playing game and had a, a tremendous uh, tremendous game and was dominant down low, both scoring and rebounding, even though, again, Anthony Edwards was on fire in his first postseason action, do I really trust the, the Timberwolves to play like they did on Saturday three more times in the series? I do not. I do not. I think the Grizzlies will bounce back. They're the better team in this series. And I do think even though game one, where there's a little bit of extra rust, whether it's overlooking their opponent, I think the Grizzlies will bounce back in game two, win that game, and then uh, win the series. So I'm not panicking about losing game number one. I do think it's an overreaction right now to say the Grizzlies are in trouble after losing game one on their home floor to the Timberwolves. And last one we'll do here, the Bulls are cooked. The Bulls are going to get swept. That to me is by far a proper reaction. Because even though yesterday was closer than expected, the comeback w- was, you know, you give them a lot of, a, a Chicago a lot of credit for the way they continue to battle all game long. If the Bulls wanted to avoid getting swept, game one was the chance. That was the perfect opportunity, and they just flat out blew it. Like, this is, I'll ask you this. Do you really think the Bucks' offense, for really the last three and a half quarters, you think they're going to look as bad as they did on a consistent basis? Where they shot 40% from the floor for the game. Where they were just 26% from three. Where they missed eight free throws as a team. Where they had 21 turnovers in the game and 14 in the second half. Do you really expect Milwaukee to play like that again, let alone two or three more times? I absolutely do not. So this was, I think, the worst game Milwaukee is going to play in this series. I think this is the worst game Milwaukee is going to play in all the postseason. So whether it was the week off and the rush factor kicking in, whether they just had no respect for the Bulls, this was the opportunity. Game one was Chicago's chance to forget, take a take a chance in this series, just to avoid getting swept. And remove that zero from the win column when they play top three teams. Because this year, they are 0-19, whether it's the East or the West, when they play top three opponents in the regular season. Now, it's 0-20. And I don't think that zero is getting removed anytime soon because their one chance they had to relinquish that zero was yesterday and they totally blew it. Like, you look at this fourth quarter, just to emphasize how bad Milwaukee was and they still won the game. The fourth quarter was absolutely there for the taking for the Bulls because you had just six buckets made by Milwaukee and they only came from two players. The only players to make a field goal in the fourth quarter were Drew Holiday and Brooke Lopez. And guess what? That was it. Giannis wasn't taking over. You didn't have... Chris Middleton hitting a lot of shots. And oh yeah, by the way, you had nine turnovers 
from uh, the Bucks in the fourth quarter alone. So part of the reason why no one else is making shots is because they're not even taking any shots. So you had nine fourth quarter turnovers. You had only Brooke Lopez and Drew Holiday make field goals from the floor in the fourth quarter. And you had them combined to make six buckets from the field. That was your chance if you're Chicago to win game one and steal one on the road and just at least worst case scenario, give your fans some hope or just have some respect from the rest of the league. But instead they blew it. And I don't think this is this series is going to be any closer anytime soon. It's going to be a blowout. I think it's going to go right down the wire for a sweep. This was the only chance Chicago had to avoid uh, a sweep and avoid going 0-23 on the season against top three teams, and they absolutely blew it. Good night, Bulls. Series is over. Season's over. They are getting swept. So you heard, at least from me, I gave you a few overreactions or proper reactions from the opening weekend of the NBA. Three more games tonight, as obviously we'll continue to carry along through the postseason. But I'm curious your thoughts here, right? We always love to overreact. We always love to make grand statements or try to extrapolate what we saw either in a positive or negative way and say, oh, that's going to happen the rest of the series. Well, I'm sorry. I'm curious your thoughts here. What is a, a big overreaction from the first weekend in, um, in the NBA playoffs? And what is a proper reaction? Should the Grizzlies be in trouble? Are the Bulls going to bounce back and you like what you saw where you think that they can really, you know, have a chance to push the Bucks here the rest of the series? Love to hear your thoughts. Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show. Also, the Ryan Hickey Show page on Facebook has our live stream and YouTube where their Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, the last 20 seconds told you all you needed to know if you are a Nets believer or a Nets fan where well, this team is not making it out of the first round of the playoffs. We'll explain what that means when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network on a Monday morning. As always, the 10 o'clock Eastern hour is brought to you by LC Designs. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions, so make sure your guests are happily fed with some delicious and aesthetically pleasing charcuterie boards made by Lauren Clark herself. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com, lcdesignsnyc.com for more information. Best game of the weekend by far in the NBA, Celtics-Nets. For me, the last two possessions of that game are the exact reason why I don't think the Nets are going to beat the Celtics in the first round, why I didn't uh, predict the Nets to even be a championship team and, again, lose to Boston in round number one. Because the two or the last two possessions of the game, the last 20 seconds of the fourth quarter showed why the deficiencies of the Nets are too much to overcome. The lack of defense and the lack of scoring outside of two best players are, to me, death nails for this team as to why they're not even going to get out of the first round. Because up one, if you're a Nets fan, I get with everything that happened up and down seesaw game. When you're up one on the road with you know a chance to put the game away in offense, you'll sign for that 10 out of 10 times. You have Kyrie Irving, who's having a tremendous game up to that point, 39 points, can't, you know, can't miss a shot. Even though Kevin Durant is still, you know, had 
one of the worst playoff games uh, in terms of inefficiency-wise of his career, it's still Kevin Durant. It's still a big moment, and he's already made some fourth-quarter shots previously. So you're feeling really damn good, up by one, ball in your hand 20 seconds ago, that your stars, your shooters, doing what they do well, would be able to put the game away. But instead, what we saw was the Nets' final offensive possession was a forced three by Kevin Durant, a contested three-pointer that was thrown up just to beat the shot clock. How do we get there? How do we go from two of the great scorers in Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant who can create their own shot, who should have defenses frantically running around and and always having a mismatch to the final shot of, of their offensive game on the offensive end is a contested three to beat the shot clock? Well, it's easy. Because there's no one else on the Celtics they have to respect or worry about that took their attention away from Kyrie and KD. The entire Celtics defensive last possession was all about stopping Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant. And they did so tremendously. They double teamed Kyrie at times. As soon as Kevin Durant got the ball, boom, there's a hand in his face. Jason Tatum was right there. Didn't give him an ounce. Didn't give him an ounce of space. Didn't give him a chance to breathe. And that tremendous defense played by the Celtics. Because they knew there was no one else on the court that was going to beat them. They were not concerned, nor should they be, about Nick Claxton getting the ball late. They knew no shot Goran Dragic was going to have the ball in his hands. And Bruce Brown was not going to be getting the ball from either Kyrie or Katie. It was going to be one of the two when Kyrie was dribbling around. Credit to the Celtics. They gave him no lanes, no avenues to find some space to get a shot off. He found Kevin Durant late. Kevin Durant, no time in the shot clock. Boom, tosses it up. Bad possession offensively. You sign for that every time if you're the Nets. But again, one of their biggest issues is that they are too top-heavy where there's no depth of scoring. It is Kevin Durant and it's Kyrie Irving and that's it. They are two tremendous scorers. They are two elite scorers and two of the best in the NBA. No one's arguing that. I'm not trying to diminish their talent. But the issue is, again, when there's even no other threat on the court, defenses like we saw the Celtics do who are a tremendous defensive team are able to hone in and lock in and give those two tremendous players... No room to operate. And when the miss goes down, we saw the other big deficiency of the Nets come back to bottom big time, and that is their horrible defense. Because you look at that last possession defensively for the Nets, Nets, it was about as bad as you could have drew it up. It, to me, reminded me of a game we played as kids, killed them out with the ball. One guy has the ball, and everyone else, two, three, four, five kids that are out there playing along with... Everyone is only chasing the ball. So everyone's running and trying to get the one guy, and everyone is following the ball. That's exactly what the Nets defense did yesterday. They didn't guard anyone. They didn't you know, stay in their lanes. They didn't have a clue defensively what the hell they were doing on the final possession of the game. Because as soon as Jalen Brown brings the ball up and is making a run on the baseline, three or four Nets converge. And then when he passes it off to Marcus Smart, almost everyone in the defense runs and shifts and runs to Marcus Smart. They're all chasing, they're all out of their lanes and not having the responsibilities. So the fact that Marcus Smart throws up a pump fake, two nets, boom, run right by, and all of a sudden, next thing you know, game on the line, the net or the Celtics now have a five-on-three offensive opportunity. And really, it's a five-on-one because two of the other defenders are that are in position, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, are ball watching. They are like me and you. Front row seat to seeing the, the final possession for the, the Celtics. They were not looking to guard someone. They were not looking to take away a passing lane or to make sure no one's breaking free. Like Jason Tatum, Kevin, uh, Jason Tatum ran right by Kevin Durant. He didn't notice. He ran right, be, uh, right by Kyrie Irving by the time he noticed. It was too late. Spoon move, layup, game over. 
And the layup was one of the easiest shots the Celtics had all game. But the reason it was such an easy look is because, again, the Nets defensively were just like chicken to their head cut off. They looked like they were unprepared for the moment. The Celtics, despite their, we'll say, lack of experience compared to the experienced guys that Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving have, and even, you know, Goran Dragic as well, three very experienced, three very, uh, very vet-savvy players who have been in the big moment multiple times, they all look like they didn't know what to do. And the Celtics were the ones that weren't panicking, that were operating their offense to exactly the way it was supposed to operate, and just stayed cool, calm, and collected. That's not how this should go. The Nets have such a little margin for error that when it comes to the offensive side of the ball, you need to be able to generate a better look than a force three uh, at the buzzer, at the shot clock buzzer. And defensively, you need to just be able to just get a hand in the face. You need to just force a tough shot. If Jason Tatum hits a step back jumper or Marcus Smart hits a contested jumper with a hand in the face, fine, you live with it. To allow an easy layup because two defenders run themselves out of the play and two others are just standing there watching the ball is inexcusable. And it's those deficiencies that the Nets have shown over and over and over again are why I don't think they're coming out of the first round and why they are nowhere near title contenders despite what Vegas says, despite what other analysts and fans say. Like, I don't know how you can watch that game and just feel good about it from a Nets perspective. Because even if Kevin Durant comes out in game number two, and I expect him to come back a lot better than how he played in game number one. It's still, you know, again, a lot to ask for your team when it's just Kyrie and just KD. They need to have epic games every playoff game. And this is also a Nets team, mind you, that a few weeks ago when they were playing the Hawks, Kevin Durant scored 55 points and the team lost. They lost. You can still have your star go off. And Kyrie Irving went off yesterday for 39 points. And they still lost because the small things continue to come back to bite this team. Defense and no other real threats. When a great Celtics team uh, defensively, which they are, number one in defensive rating this entire season. When they are able just to hone in on two players because they know that's only two guys are going to take a shot in KD and Kyrie. It makes your defense easier. And again, these are two all-world uh, all scores. You are still able to put the clamps down like they did, and in the biggest moment of the game, get a much-needed stop. On the other end of the floor, because the Nets are so bad defensively, you get easy looks. And they had easy looks all throughout the game. Even when the Nets came back in the fourth quarter, took a five-point lead you know, with five minutes to go, the reason why the Nets were unable to pull away and the reason why the Celtics kept getting in position to tie the game and take the lead is because any single time the Nets scored, the Celtics would come right down the court with an easy bucket, with an easy layup, with an easy shot. They were always matching buckets in part because the Nets couldn't buy a stop. And I don't think that that's going to change throughout the rest of the series. It's going to be a tough series. I think it's going to go six games. I got the Celtics in six. But man, it's you cannot come out of that game feeling good if you're a Nets fan. Two things, two small areas should have bailed you out and should have had you win game one. And both of those deficiencies took you down. And both of those deficiencies aren't going away anytime soon. Bruce Brown's not going to develop into the next Jordan Poole. This defense all of a sudden is not going to just figure it out and become a top 10 defense in the league. These holes, these areas for the Nets, I think are too... um, too much overcome. This team is losing in the first round, and it's going to be another disappointing ending for a Nets team that had high hopes for a few years ago when Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving came to town. They would not expect 
one playoff series win through three years, and I think that's what they're getting. That's what they're getting. Just heartbreaking, brutal loss for the Nets in game number one. But again, it comes back to the small areas they chose to ignore. They chose to ignore and they sacrificed uh, defense for offense. And they chose to go top-heavy with Kevin Durant and James Harden. I'm sorry, Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And then even when James Harden was there, decided to sell the rest of the farm to bring James Harden in. And that has just completely backfired. But that's now you are paying the piper for those decisions. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. Really do appreciate everyone who tuned in and made us a part of your Monday. We will be back on Thursday morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, right here on all these same platforms, Facebook, Worldwide, Sports Radio Network. Also check us out, the Ryan Hickey Show uh, page is on Facebook. Make sure to throw us a like there. We're on Twitter, at Ryan Hickey Show. We're also WWSRN underscore radio. And we're on YouTube as well, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So make sure you check us out. We'll be back Thursday morning, 9 a.m. live to continue to break down the NBA postseason. So between now and then, as always, stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you on Thursday right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.